Mentor is a completely free platform where we pair together mentors and mentees um, through our Slack group channels and through meetups. And it allows people to exchange ideas and help each other out. Um, if you're interested in Meet a Mentor and joining up, please come and have a chat with me later. Or alternatively, just go to meetamentor.co.uk. Uh, RecWorks are also a recruitment agency. Um, we are trying to change the face of recruitment, tech recruitment obviously in particular. Um, RecWorks was born from a belief that recruitment didn't have to be an unethical, cold place. Um, and that an opportunity existed to learn from others and deliver an outstanding recruitment service. If you're interested in what RecWorks can offer, feel free to come and have a chat with me. I'm not a recruiter, I'm just here to help you out, so don't feel like I'm gonna take you on or anything like that. Um, but you're more than welcome to have a chat, or you can go to recworks.co.uk. Um, I'm now gonna hand you over to Peter. Have a lovely evening. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks very much for that, Jamie. Um, yeah, so thank you for coming um, to this uh, fantastic event for the London Java community. And um, yeah, so Richard was supposed to come along and present on functional tic-tac-toe. However, he couldn't make it, but uh, I'm here. And thankfully, I arrived uh, earlier. Yes, so I'm going to be talking to you about this Java Enterprise Edition. And um, I'm going to introduce myself, first of all. So I'm an independent contractor. I touched Java exactly 20 years ago and perhaps eight months. So in January 1998, I started coding Java with, uh, with Sybase at a little-known bank called Morgan Grenfield, which is just down the road from here. And that was bought by the massive behemoth, which is, I think, in that direction. Can anyone tell me who that is? Deutsche Bank. So I've been programming uh, basically with Java from applets and onto Swing and, and Java EE. So that's me. I'm a now a limited contractor. I've been doing that for about, yeah, in total of 10 years and that's my limited company. So those are my details. So I'm a Java champion. Do you, does anyone know what a Java champion is? No, a Java champion is one of those people who are uh, that Oracle or then Sun Microsystems uh, picked out. I didn't choose to be it, but members of the community thought I was worthy. <laughs> and I've written um, a couple of Java EE books, um, which I, I'll show you in a minute. So much of my life is development. I've been programming Java for 20 odd years, and then I had some several years before that. Guess what? Unix C, a little bit of Fortran 77, Perl, Shell, goodness gracious, and of course the early days of Linux. And surprise, surprise, if you do DevOps, you know those skills are very relevant. So I currently work for a financial client in Birmingham, and I also have an office in London. And I, I live in and work 
I worked in Milton Keynes for Santander. So, so these are my published books. Uh, the first book on the right came out in 2015. Um, the other one came out in 2013 when uh, specification was released. So it's pretty much certain if Pat can phone me and tell me, please write them a book, they trusted me to write these books. So the web, everybody is using the web. This is a quote from Tim Berners-Lee. So he's comparing the industrial growth of how the web compares to like the train industry or or farming industry, it grows extremely quickly compared to, say, uh, telephone and television industries. And of course, the, the other thing to care about in this domain of digital is the JVM. It's not Java the mother language that has been the star, it has been Java the virtual machine, as by the father of Java, James Goslin, and everybody does know who James Goslin is. So I'm going to talk to you about the innovations of Java EE, and the influential technologies that were part, that also part of it. And you may know there's a bit of a Java EE crisis. Uh, some bits about the prognosis, how we, what we can do, or what the community can do to fix it. And like an African griot, try to point the way of where we can go into the future with then Jakarta EE. So these seven innovations. Uh, in these, this is my personal opinion. Order isn't important. So I'm going to throw a little story out there. So back in the days of the year 2000, uh, J Java, there was, no, I'm going to paint, paint a picture like this. Before there was Java, there was programming with Perl. How many people know CGI bin? A couple of people. So this was a way to extend the Apache web server, HTTPD and then execute a script against a, a web request input. Now, it was heavyweight in those days and expensive to do as well as highly dangerous thing to do. So everybody wanted to, at the, that time, the turn of millennium, in .bomb, before .bomb, they wanted to write simple backend applications. And of course, Java had taken off immensely in 1995 and so there was a lot of hype but what does everybody do what i assume you are java developers java developers yeah. scala one coitlin groovy closure good good but what does your technical lead want you to do what does he want you to do what is the first thing? You go to a Java course and you sit there and you get to do some real business code. What does he do? What do they tell you to do? What does she tell you to do? They tell you to write some persistence code, don't they? And that is a major innovation in Java Enterprise Edition. Because we're still relying on it today. So what did Java database connectivity do for us? Well, it was a project 
it came out in 1997 before the EE specification. So the first Java enterprise specification was something called J2EE 1.0 1998. I, I think December 1998 when it was officially sanctioned by the Standards Committee. But JDBC existed when I had my first Java. And what was great about it, it was the f I didn't know what a design pattern was. I sort of knew what the design patterns were in um, C++ days, iterators. And, but this was genius because the guys, well, excuse me, Graham Hamilton, Rick Cattle, and Maydean Fisher, who's a lady, came up with this marvelous specification. And most people know it here by using the statement, the prepared statement, compiled statements, and if you're unlucky enough to use Java to call PL SQL, <laughs> yeah, stored procedures, that's all you need to know. But did you know, inside the JDBC specification, they made it so meaty that you could get metadata from your statement, and from your metadata, get the actual schema. So that means you could write Java to query and find out about all the tables and also the views in your enterprise application for the first time. Not that out of your head, C++ guys. And you could execute this code on HP Unix, AIX, Linux. It was brilliant. All you need is a Java runtime. So that was the secret source, this low-level API. And there were other people in the community more cleverer than me who noticed this. Oh, I thought I wrote a program to look at all the foreign keys. Oh, that was excited. Or the primary keys of my tables. In fact, I did this. I wrote something in early swing that would go into the database and I could type any SQL query. I wrote basically SQL Navigator or DB Editor and it all fitted on a floppy disk. And that was, oh, that was brilliant. I did that. And it's all due to do with JDBC. That was freaking awesome. The next innovation was remote method invocation. So back in the day, in the, those heady days, if you wanted two programs to communicate, uh, perhaps in C, or you had wrote something else in Pascal, you had to go through something called object mapping protocol. And, and you could get two C programs to communicate by using something called um, remote procedure calls. And you, of course, using C and Unix, it was a hard thing to do. It would generate header files. But in Java, this sort of did exist in 1.1 of the API. So those of you who perhaps might remember, I forget the name, David Flanagan wrote Java in a nutshell. It was about that big, actually. And um, so using RMI, you could, that would generate Java classes that would allow you to proxy and execute methods on another JVM or in the same local machine or even in a remote machine. 
So that was brilliant. That I could have another a Java application that will invoke something else. The start of distributed computing. So it was major, RMI, in 1999. So what came next? I'm watching all your faces. <laughs> Some people are a bit hate on EJB. So I'm looking to see if people are young or maybe old, and in the middle, maybe you might not know the controversy of EJB. But EJB stands for Enterprise Java Beans, and it's a crazy concept when you think about it. So most people know what a Java bean is, which is basically an extension of a plain old Java bean. But EJB made that RMI world even more straightforward. I hesitate. <laughs> When you, in J2EE, if you wanted to have this power, you had to deal with something called XML hell. And you've luckily, you've passed that by, so you can count your lucky stars. But I went to a, a client in Credit Suisse in 2004, and I saw stateless session EJBs in there that they were using to do some federated services. I don't know, cash flow it, and I can't be sued now. I've long left there. But there, let, um, let me back up a bit. There are three types of EJBs that's undefined. Or there was the session variety that was basically an endpoint in space. There was the message-driven being variety, which was to deal with middleware messaging. And there was the dreaded entity EJBs. These are, this, this was really terrible. This is a whole EJB designed for persistence. And no, don't go there. You, you're lucky. But, but unlucky, sir, you remember. So, but anyway, what EJB gave you was transaction processing. It gave you concurrency. At, the ability to have asynchronous invocations. There was lifecycle management. So if you wrote session EJBs, processing time back in those days was really expensive. So you had to have an application server, maybe WebLogic or Oracle or something, and you pooled perhaps 20 EJB, session EJBs for those web customers. And that's essentially what, that's what we were doing. That's why we wanted these enterprise services. So instead of writing freaking Perl, maybe Python, I let them off, you, you could write your enterprise business code in a language that is thread safe, got, has a thread pool, has transactions. Um, the only problem with EJB is that it, you had this XML help and also this thing called naming services. Uh, JNDI, but I'll leave that for now. So we've got our endpoints in, in some address space on a remote machine. We can hit them with RMI. What else does our Java Enterprise application need, you know, circa the turn of millennium? It needs a way of generating dynamic HTML content. You have to throw your head back be, before Google Maps. When I saw Google Maps and Ajax and XML, HTTP requests, oh my good, that changed the game, uh, Web 2. But before that, when you 
had a web application, it was making page requests. It would bring the whole page back to you and the browser would refresh itself. But in order to do that, Java needed something. And it was surflets, the corresponding thing to an applet. So a guy called James Duncan Davidson created the reference implementation. And I think, for me, this is possibly the second after JDBC. Uh, I didn't have it in order. But what he invented was a reference implementation of that specification called Apache Tomcat, which allowed, for the first time, engineers to write Java web applications. So I'm going to make a little digression, so I have a lot of time now. I am the founder of a London user group. Does anyone know what that user group is? Now, in 2004, I started up the Java Web User Group. And that was started because everybody who was serious into Java was in, into something called struts, and I'll explain that. So, but it wouldn't have happened without James Duncan Davidson's and his surflet specification. If you use Spring Boot today, you've got two choices. You can embed Tomcat or Jetty. I think there's a fair choice as well. What James obviously did was borrow the idea of the applet specification, which is a, a, a sandbox so that your applets couldn't do bad things. But it, but what he could prepared was this idea of a servlet container where the servlets would run and execute. So again, low-level stuff, but highly relevant to the, still to today, the world we live today, whether you're doing Spring Boot or Drop Widget or something else. And this is the guy. That's what he looks like. He now is a, a photographer, a professional photographer for TED Global Events. 48 years old, created the Apache Tomcat, and also the build. So back in 1999, there was no ant. There was no standard Java build to. It's like Scala without SBT, um, Spring without Gradle, Maven, nothing. He was the first guy that created a build system. And his mate down the road, Craig McClanahan, he created this thing called Struts. From that, I started a user group. At one time in 2003, everybody in the world that, I, that was major in web frameworks was on the Struts user at jakarta.apache.org. And, and Tomcat wasn't a top-level Apache as it was now. So if when you fire up Apache Tomcat, he came up with the Catalina executor container with valves and pipes. And with valves and pipes, you can do the servlet filters. So he was a member of the expert groups way back in the day as well. So I just wanted to introduce him. Without him, we we'll probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. The next thing he created was a specification called Server Pages. And this is a marketing exercise from Sun Microsystems. They realized things started to happen. 
with servlets. And in the, back in the bad old days of bad Microsoft and Obama running up and down and shouting his head off, they needed to fight active server pages. So they came up with Java server pages. And what did we do as engineers? We decided to write our code. And the bad thing we did as Java engineers was mix our, our business logic into our pres presentation logic. And it was a mess. So he came up with the design pattern again to use struts, a model view controller framework. You put all your actions in struts actions. You have beat form beans. And the world is a lot easier. And that struts framework is the precursor for so many things like tapestry, velocity, free marker, time leaf, um, the list goes on, handlebars, Java, there's so many other things. But even, yeah, I'll leave it there. The sixth innovation is messaging. So I hadn't seen messaging being used in simple digital web applications. However, I got into investment banks there and suddenly the world changed. What is this thing? What are you talking about? What, what do we need messaging for first? So if you have a different experience, you may come from e-commerce or pre-recent e-commerce where yeah. you take a customer order, does some work and then your order is ready to be delivered. You, do, you send it to a queue and you have a subscriber at the end of it that sends a, a, a message to the customer. So in banking terms, what I saw was trade flows. Something comes from the exchange, does some work, you do a calculation and you put it on another queue. In fact, I saw many examples of pipes and filter architecture as it was then, lots of message, message queues. And they say things come round again. You wouldn't believe some of the things that I see in microservices these days. So message queues and JMS was, JMS actually standardized what you could do with messages. And, and I know there's more exotic things going on. Uh, you have peer-to-peer -peer and publish and subscribe. And it all started with this uh, JMS specification to unite the various different things. Because that does, in the past, you had a separate server. That's where the world of Java or J2EE, you, had, you bought as the IT director, you oh, put um, a million pounds, I'm going to buy that server, and that's going to be my solution, and then I'm going to buy support. The seventh innovation is restful services. This is probably the third thing that really did save Java EE from the year, um, in this decade especially. Um, so representational state transfer. Most people will have heard of Roy Fielding and are probably doing this in their jo day jobs using Spring MVC, REST controllers, and they may be doing it with JAXRS themselves. Um, so the first specification was server-side. And the most great thing about it, it took advantage of Java's annotations. And it's quite really good for that sort of work and saves a lot of de uh, days of headaches. Uh, JAXRS came out with Java EE7. 
and fixed the floor, it, a client-side API. And some things such as linking, which you need for hypertext as an element of state. And it was initially missing the JSON bindings, but I know you can do it with Jackson as well. So JaxRS is actually superb. It's great. So I chose these seven because these are examples of the incredible innovations for EE. They allow business applications to persist. You can have dynamic HTML. And if you forget that, of course, we used to have application servers, it was easy to deploy an application like a war, an EIR, and then we have that application running. Yeah, and the big thing is that for Java web frameworks, they really accelerated things uh, in, for simple EE applications. So any questions on that? Oh. And these are some of the great names who helped. The list is not exhaustive, so, so perhaps there, there will be bias, but most people probably wouldn't have heard of Paul Perone. He does robotics now. Uh, Bill Burke, he still works for Red Hat. Uh, who else? Abraham Wolf is a architect. Joe Winchester, British guy, he created something called DWR. Go and look it up. Howard Lewis Ship created Tapestry. Keto Demand, he's into Java server faces, web components, and the new ways of building web service. Uh, web workers on HTML5. Kathy Sierra wrote a lot of books on Java, education. Uh, Gavin King, Hibernate. He now works on Salon, which is losing the war with Kotlin. But he invented the thing called Hibernate. Uh, who else? Chris Richardson. He created Cloud Foundry. Original person who created Cloud Foundry, sold it to Rod Johnson Spring Source. And guess who bought Spring Source? VMware. And who bought VMware? Pivotal. They're just down the road. Marcus Eisel was an EE evangelist in Germany and now works for TypeSafe. No, he doesn't work for TypeSafe. He works for Lightpen. Elliot Rusty Howell wrote the first specifications for XML, Java XML, JAXSB and binding and that sort of thing. So he left the Java world. Now he has returned. I'm not sure where he's working. Antonio Goncalbis is the former ooh, founder of the Paris Java user group. And now he's a Java champion. And now he's just moved over. He's had enough of Java and moved over to TypeScript and Angular 6, or is it 7 these days? So he's doing a lot of that work. Craig McClanahan and James Duncan Davison, they 
lost their faith in Java, and maybe that's true. And they did, they jumped into Ruby and Wales in 2005. So the other influential Java EE technologies, in my opinion, are JPA, the second wave. And this is Gavin King's baby, really, as well as Oracle's. Oracle had a pro product for object relational mapping called TopLink, and it was proprietary. And, it, and what is that object relational mapping? It means that you can take Java objects and seamlessly, by, by magic, persist them into a database. So before Java annotations, one had to write a Hibernate XML mapping file, which is a pain, really, to or get or you had a database and you ran the schema generated that would generate all that for you, XML for you. And I think that JPI, JPA is also a successful implementation of Java annotations. Spring supports it. And it's quite powerful. You can have um, lazy and eager loading. There was a, and also a competing technology at the time called Codemetrics, which was based on object databases. And so it, that predates Neo4j in a huge way, but it wasn't accepted by the then masters of the specification. They wanted something now, and it was proved to be the right decision. Uh, CDI, Spring invented its own CDI it's in dependency injection in 2002. However, and CDI, context and dependency injection, came out about six years later. And it was the Java EE's way of bringing strong, strongly tight dependency injection into the EE space. The, the one major um, I suppose the most important innovation is that they had this association with Java server faces and probably irrelevant. You, you can have scopes in the, in the servlet specification, life, different lifetimes, like request scope only li lives for the length of a HTTP request, session scope, and uh, application scope. So what they did is generalize this lifecycle beam factory, as it would be in spring, to, so that you can have dependency injection in Java, which with annotations, it's strongly typed. So there was no kind of guesswork. And yeah, so I'm, what I'm saying here in this, the dependency injection is fairly old. And the first one was not Project Avalon. Apache, nobody quite understood. I think it's quite horrible when I looked at it. It was based on, you think, Eclipse uh, interfaces. If you want to build an Eclipse runtime, you think those are bad. But Apache Avalon um, had this different idea of contextualized dependency lookup. So it's borderline. Of course, Spring, Rod Johnson's baby, and Jurgen's baby came with setter injection and also XML files. And there's something in from Maven called Pico container, which I've never quite understood, 
but a pioneered constructor inject injection. And then there's more injection types because Spring hired the guy from IBM who invented aspect-orientated programming, and so you have introductions. Yes, so as I, I've already explained that, uh, yeah, it was late, December 2009, uh, Java EE6. So, of course, Spring is going to win, and their bean factory implementation is there to forever. The one thing I like about CDI, it had this idea of interceptors, which is a sort of a weak form of AOP. So, people know, don't know. You know what AOP is? Aspect orientated programming, where you can uh, put, separate transactions, login uh, from your Java objects. They also had uh, event publishing. And when I looked into it, the idea that Spring Framework will ever adopt CDI, um, it won't happen. So the war will continue that way. Java Server Faces, this was um, Craig McClanahan's other baby before he jumped ship to Ruby and Rails. And so the, the initial code base was the idea long before Ajax was to build this sort of modular component base Java UI front end where you could put input fields, text areas, different areas to render and it would be all done in the Dreamweaver race. Anyone remember Dreamweaver in Flash? <laughs> but it didn't quite work out. Um, Project Rave it was never going to be a seller um, for a good thing. But it's famous for involving these four gentlemen, Joe Nuxer, Tornobi, Dipwall, and Carl Quinn, because they're the members of an old podcast now of the Java Posse. And JSF brought component-orientated frameworks to at least the Java web space, so it predates then Google Web Toolkit and Vaden. So... Yeah, JSF had this idea of lifecycle scope and where there's a request lifecycle and a response lifecycle and therefore the idea was to generate PDFs, documentation, the works. Didn't quite happen. Being validation is the other notable one. That's even used, it's used in Spring because it validates all sorts of things, entity beams, uh, CDI and JPA entities, and J of course, JAXRS. And the other two, J Java Transaction Services, well, once upon a time, an investment bank had to buy a transaction server, an expensive beast, but now they don't have to do that. The, the, the idea of distributed transactions uh, across message queues, across a database, proved too expensive and too high cost for performance. And the final one, Java Connector Architecture, um, was a way to, again, access exotic middleware. So I'm not going to bore you to with that. There's a crisis in Java EE, or there was now. So in the summer of 
2016, in that whole year, we noticed the community that Oracle were being very quiet in what they were planning or delivering for Java EE8. So bear in mind, EE7 came out in 2013. So community were getting itchy feet. And it wasn't me, but a few people desperately were looking for this. What's going on with Oracle? As they were, they controlled what specifications, what the technologies and what the innovations in the, in the standards were going to be. Um, there was lack of communication from spec leads, especially the ones in Oracle. The expert groups tend to be dormant. I remember uh, one Spring pivotal guy, Oliver Gerke, who looks after Spring data. And he said, what's going on? What is going on? I want to find out about JPA 2.1. Um, can someone from Oracle come back to him? And that didn't happen. And other people noticed things. It was going quiet. And journalists came and asked me what was going on, but they got to James Gosling first, and he wailed against Oracle for the Java EE neglect. It turns out the rumors were quite true. Um, Oracle uh, were secretly building their own solution to serverless <coughs> called FN, Fin, and you can go and check it out now if you want. But we didn't know that in June 2016. It was revealed in September, three months later, 2016, but uh, it's all quiet. And of course, yeah, to the present day, Thomas Kirian has left the company. But what happened to the community is that they started the micro profile. Uh, David Blevins, a couple of guys from Red Hat, Pariah, for any people from Pariah today, IBM, they came up with the micro profile, and of course, Martin Verberg, who is part of the London Java community, Java champion, really didn't want EE to die. And there's an, a chap from, I think, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, in America, called a former uh, Java employee, Oracle employee, called Reza Rahman. And he came up with the Java EE guardians which is a way to fight Oracle outside of the company. So that's where we were. But while that was going on, I had written my two books. I was feeling myself, well, to hell with this. There's something else going on. I was working for the home office, well, not directly. So I was looking into Scala. And Surprisingly, that was using a thing called Drop Wizard. I said, what the hell is this? How can Scala be using this Drop Wizard thing? And it turns out this was a, something that I heard six years ago at the Java Posse. Um, people were starting to use Jetty to turn the relationship. They were fed up talking to ops. They were fed up, the, look, I need you to deploy this war file and air file into WebLogic. So 
they turned things around. And I was just losing the faith with Java EE. And so I started on this journey myself, cloud native DevOps inspired evolution. And I have a quote from a YouTube talk by Josh Evans, who is the former vice president of engineering at Netflix. A microservice is this extreme reaction to monolithic applications. It is an evolutionary approach to a set of specific problems. Probably the best description of what we are trying to do. So you've heard of microservices. So in our world, I've unfortunately picked on Pariah, but it could be Glassfish, IBM, where could be Wildfly, many, all these application servers. They have a full application service with EJB, the works, and typically what a traditional e-commerce business would do, would write Java 6, Java 7 code, bundled it all up into an ear file which contains all the jar files and a war file, and it will work on one monolithic application. The problem with that is that it, it's not highly available and it doesn't scale. And you have to go through the administration. And even an even smaller scale, the web profile, the Apache Tomcat or Jetty, it, you have to deploy your war file to Tomcat. And of course, it's talking to Oracle database. So in 2010, the world started to turn on its head. Why don't we build here, oh, that should be standalone Uber jar. Why don't we build here, why don't we take advantage of embedding Tomcat inside our application? And any frightened faces when I mention the shade plugin from Maven? No, not quite. Um, we can put all our application in one massive Uber jar. We can do shading where we write in Dojo and we do some magic manipulation. We turn that JavaScript code and put it in set locations. Oh, we've got a conflict with Hibernate. Oh, right, we move that Hibernate jar into another place, delete it, then bundle it again. Um, our Jenkins server is uh, struggling. Oh, it's got bad problems, but we can get there. Um, and that's really what many people were doing in the early part of the de in this decade. And then it came along, Drop Wizard and Pivotal's Spring Sources, Spring Boot, to turn that notion onto its head. And that is essentially what our Spring Boot applications, our microservices are. Because therefore, we get this from Netflix, or we get an evolutionary response to monolithic applications where we have the separation of concerns we have modularity in terms of function. Okay, there's a missing part to that. FR microservices follow the single responsibility principle from solid, and they don't do too many things, because I've seen that broken with microservices. 
then we have modularity. One microservice does one thing and it does one thing well. There's encapsulation. If it's a payment tracker, it does that. It sends messages to the outside world through a financial gateway. It does that one thing well. Well, there's scalability then. Uh, because we can scale it across machines in different address spaces. Uh, we can therefore partition our workloads. And if we put it inside something called Docker, we can run it on our own machine or even put that on AWS or Azure. And I mentioned Docker because this world of a full application server is gone. We now have Docker machines with lots of layers, images, with a Linux operating system, which in turn spins up a Java virtual machine and then a little, little, little application. And even people think that is expensive. I don't know anybody, I've not met anyone who is spinning up 10,000 or 100,000 microservice instances. Anyone in the room doing that? I've certainly not come across that level of scale myself. But if you think what, where it is going, and where I bet none of you are using Java versions beyond 9, 10. Is anyone using Java 10? No. Because when we get the modular JVM, if we can almost provision what we would like, and we can make our essential provisioning payload extremely small, fit for our purpose. But the point is, I do reject the premise of the original question in the early, in the last decade. And the question is, why do we have to deploy war and air files? We don't have to do that. The cost of something like Docker, the containerization, de facto containerization technology, means it's very quick to assemble these images. You can compose, use Docker Compose to have, say, NeuroDB, uh, Nginx, uh, whatever database you might need. And Docker is the packaging of applications, libraries, and the operating system. And because you can do that, if something went wrong, you just kill the, the node that is failing and spin it up again. OK, we need some orchestration. So you might use Kubernetes to control, or you might do some platform engineering to to figure out how you ought to scale. But the whole premise of that world is gone because we now live in this. This is the world. If it's not Docker, it's something else. And does anyone understand what I mean by embedded applications? You do just jar, minus jar, your application.jar, and you're away. You just Use YAML files to configure ports, and you're gone. Or the app's gone. This is the world. This is really the world of microservices, where you have lots of nodes, 
lots of applications, some may be in Java, some may be in other languages such as Go, and they're communicating. Some look after the infrastructure, some look after your business, and you have to know exactly what you're doing. This is a whole different universe to standard Java application development. This opens the doors to DevOps and platform engineering. You must know what you, must, you are doing. If you're going to invest in the cloud and as a pay-as-you-go service, otherwise your IT director, he or she is wasting money on Amazon, which is nonsense. The whole idea is to save money. Happy face. So I bring in the, the subject matter of platform engineering. This goes beyond Java development. So one has to consider what is it that am I building as a microservice, as an architecture? Do I need um, a SaaS, a software as a service where I'm building my own Gmail, I'm building Salesforce, and I'm giving that to a customer. Or am I building apps like Netflix that require a pass, a platform of a service? Or do I need something very low level, like infrastructure service? Because I want to make sure that I'm in control of what operating system runs on my Amazon machine instances, whether that's Amazon or Bitnami. I'm in control, but that's another tech talk. And you must choose wisely. So the prognosis for EE. So to continue the story of 2016, the Oracle did their thing. The industry reacted. It came up with the micro profile. Oracle eventually conceded. They fast released Java EE8 in 2017, about a year ago. The they gave EE to Eclipse. Now you deal with it, Eclipse Foundation guys, which they are doing. They haven't done it, they're doing it. They came up with a brand name, Jakarta. And that was because, does anyone know why? Because all the trademark people were, oh, what are you gonna call it? They aren't gonna make money from you if you use my trademark. So they came up with Jakarta, which was denoted from the Apache Foundation, and there was no trademark or intellectual property infringements there. And recently, in the last month, they announced um, the transfer of 39 source code repositories and the two compatibility kit, which is really important for a standard, because the one thing that they held on, uh, micro, uh, not Microsoft, well, Oracle could be Microsoft, they held on, if you wanted to write your own implementation of JSF, they held on tightly to, uh, for the two compatibility kit and said, I want my money, and then you can have it. But that's not being fair for the smaller guys like um, Tommy Tribe, who can't afford to, to, to pay to have a fully... Um, certified Java EE server or be certified compliant. So this is really a good thing. 
for the small guys, the small medium enterprises in the world. So Jakarta EE is still working process, but the micro process, micro profile is where it is. It's at 1.4, and the vendors are still trying to deliver that. And it's great. So the first version of micro profile supported CDI, it supported JAXRS and JSON P, the parsing, not the binding, just three major specs. That was what they released or rush released as of a year ago. And things have been moving apace with the rest of the JSON <coughs> specifications, fault tolerance, which is circuit breaker, microservice kind of things, metrics, which is equivalent to spring actuator, health check, you know, for your instances, swagger support and yacht, web Java web tokens, and there's still more. They are now in a parallel track. So there's 2.0, which has more things than the 1.4. But the question is, is this enough for developers, it probably certainly, in my opinion, as I've worked with architects and DevOps and platform engineers, it's not really enough in this new world. And I put out a call on Twitter. I have close to 3,000 followers. And I had an idea. So I, the reason why I did this, I asked the question, are there developers, DevOps and architects using MicroProfile in real anger today, targeting delivery to production? I'm very interested in hearing your story. So, Fazit, when I accidentally started the user group, as everybody was living on Struts user in 2004, I, it was, I think it was my second year of contracting and I suddenly was flushed. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got some money. I want to go to America to this fabulous Java One conference, which is sadly renamed to Oracle Code One. And that was the good days. And I flew out there, and I just saw the end of the nice time of tech. Borland was still going. They had wild parties, like free swag, tech, bags, pens, you name it. Um, but in those days, there was definitely traction. That's what I'm getting to. And I put that tweet out, I got diddly squat. So I waited three days. Yeah, silence was sort of deafening. And maybe the technology is like an old car phone warehouse catalogue and where there was a stock phrase that he used, too new to comment on the Nokia N95. It was so new, nobody knew if it was going to be a, a deal breaker or not. Ah, this is pre-iPhone 1. And then I got frustrated myself, like six days later, I put out another tweet. And then perhaps it is, but this doesn't apply, no offence. The fact that you're here after 5pm shows that EE is still living. <laughs> that Spring Boot will still live. Because it's just 
a tech job for many, many people. And, and, and this is a male audience, mostly male, and I get it that families do matter. So. And then I did some more digging and I used my own insights. And I think many people want to, there's the bleeding edge. The fact that not many people are using Java 10 tells me that some of the tech is very small, the, the, the need for it. Most people don't have these special unique problems where they need reactive programming. It's a nice to have, but maybe it's a little bit too early. What people do want is perhaps more logging. They want to be able to log what goes on to inside applications to Elk, or maybe turn that into a call to Kafka. Uh, people are still hurting from enterprise Java beans. EJB, they're still in pain, <laughs> 10 years. And they've done, they've gone off and done closure. Some have done Ruby. Some people might be now programming Go or Haskell, talking about, oh, how functional their code is now. Um, but some people, probably it's a good idea to retire the, the application server. I drop support for older technologies such as CORBA and JCA. Most people would love to use Jigsaw to modularize their applications. And if people can modularize their ap applications with Java 9, Therefore, you don't need a big heavyweight application server because you are building your own runtime with Jigsaw. So it would be nice to build a module, build the, the image, that, the Java image that you want with the JAXRS module. If you're doing Westfall inf interfaces or the JPA or JMS, whatever it is, you can bundle it all together. So removal of app servers. And like I said, <laughs> most people don't care. They'd rather leave it to the other person to spec this out, which I think is dangerous. So community input and excitement is needed. The point is, I do think we're kind of heading that way to at least better days. Um, and I'm just gonna throw this in there. Uh, for the longest time, people, the Java champions and people who have been writing about EE, including myself, have championed the idea of having a standard so that pe you can, no matter what app server, you could fire up this embedded server. I think it's too little too late now because everything is wrapped in Spring Boot and people will wrap it but it'd be nice to have it. Testing is hard for EE, still hard. I know we have Archillion, but it's still hard. So you know the test pyramid, you have, you're supposed to have a lot of unit tests, functional tests, integration tests, and then smoke tests, then end-to-end -end tests. Most people have the diamond <laughs> in spring, and in Java EE, where they're doing a lot of integration tests. Because we're, we have lots of um, RabbitMQ on messaging, 
and we are firing up this expensive app server or app, um, embedded web application. Distributed streaming, I think that is really important uh, because we need something more than just JMS. We need to have that idea where we can talk to a data warehouse, data lake, uh, where we are streaming. And, there, and that is tied into the reactive sort of view. And of course, service discovery would be useful as well. So that we, they are sort of going in that direction with fault tolerance, but there's a whole lot more that can be done. Um, if, you use, uh, if you use Netflix, Eureka, Zookeeper, it's a bit like stepping outside of the Java's EE's comfort zone, but I suggest that Jakarta EE talk to those guys. Uh, the funny thing that Jakarta EE is desperately in need of being cloud aware. So when you have a microservice application, internally you don't know where you are running. I know in Java 9 you have, finally you can find out from the Java calls, the process ID, and you can find out other processes. Um, but for certain applications like Heroku or wherever you're running, if it's um, SAS, PASS, or IAS, <laughs> then uh, it would be nice to know what my semantics are. Is that WebMQ there? And having worked in DevOps and infrastructure as code, the big thing that people do need is to instrument their code and to configure. So how, does, uh, how do you terraform my microservice Jakarta EE application? I know there's certain things you can do with Pivotal Cloud Foundry, but it might be useful to allow some of that world to seep in to the new world that we are living in right now. So those are nice to have. Um, these are points that I've noticed. Kotlin has really taken off, especially in the Android world. I think Scala's days are, in my opinion, a bit numbered. I think there's, certainly at Santander, I never met the guy but I was surprised to see a book from Pat Publishing about microservices in Kotlin. <laughs> and I'm not sure if the guy, I never, I think maybe that was a, a team in London. And I work and live, I live and work in Milton Keynes, or at least I worked in Milton Keynes. So I was quite fascinated by some of the ideas in there where you have the reactor framework, and it looks really nice as well. This, the idea that you have data classes, which kind of look like Scala's case classes. So that made me set up a notice. If people can start to write um, applications, Jakarta EE applications with Kotlin, that would be perhaps uh, a breakthrough. The fact that EE, Java EE, doesn't take care of lambdas is dreadful. So they need to catch up and that wise streams. And if you're gonna use um, Java 8 streams, then you need to think about reactive. You need to think e either 
all the extra Java, the observables, and keep abreast of Brian Getz, who is the architect for Java. And the reason why I, I, I say because he brought VAR into Java 10, and there was rumors of him bringing some sort of case class and pattern matching into the Java language, which will be exciting. If you know Scala World, well, the, those case classes, uh, you, you can have something called extractors, which allow you to pass input. So you have um, constructors, that data classes, and extractors that turn those broken representations, the tuples or key values, back into objects or data objects. And if he's doing that, what does that mean for JPA or Spring Data? It could be really exciting, which is why I say Jakarta EE should really sit next to Brian Getz and whatever he thinks of adding to language. And all of course are still in frame their hat. Remember JDBC? Well, they are having their, putting their thinking caps on again for a synchronous database API, which would be brilliant for reactive programming. So, the executive summary. How long have I been? I gave you a brief history of EE. I gave you the seven innovations that I, would, I think are highly relevant, starting with JP, JDBC and ending with JAX RS. Their crisis, the birth of that Jakarta EE brand. I think the future is good for EE. I mean, I've been programming with Java for now nearly 21 years now. I don't think EE will disappear, but now is the time for Jakarta EE to embrace something more than just developers. It needs to look, really look beyond into the DevOps space and the platform engineering space because that is our world now. And with that, that's the end. Thank you. Thank you. However long the night, the dawn will break. African griot saying. And you can find me with these things. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to take them. If not, I'm going to be here for a while. Thank you. This is a Pilgrim Engineering Architecture Technology production. You can copy the data, the media, and the code, but you must always attribute the source. You can follow us on Twitter at Peter underscore Pilgrim, or go to the website zenonique.co.uk. Shares, likes, comments, feedback, always appreciated. Enjoy your day. Make it a good one. Bye for now.